I learned a hard lesson in the mid-90s when the boss I was working for took me aside the night before I was getting up to give a speech to 500 of my colleagues and told me that everyone hated me in the company. <gasps> it was like, you know, you had an outer body experience. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, you're about to meet a woman who's made connecting business with social impact her mission. Susan McPherson is the CEO and founder of McPherson Strategies, a consulting firm that's worked with companies like Intel, JCPenney, and Kate Spade to strengthen their social impact and their business. And Susan is someone I've wanted to talk to for a while. She is one of Fortune's most influential women on Twitter. She has a knack for communication and connecting people. And so in addition to our conversation about business and social responsibility, we'll also discuss what it takes to break through that noise on social media and how to stand out. Here's Susan McPherson. Susan McPherson, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here. And um, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you here, not only because are you connected to all of these brilliant women who are have been telling me for ages now, get Susan on the podcast, which I love. That is so nice. But I also really wanted to talk to you today about social impact and the idea that business can have a social impact, the importance of that. We had Tori Birch here on the podcast not long ago. And, you know, I ask everyone at the end of the interview, which I will ask you as well, the worst advice that you've received. And for Tori Birch, she talked about the fact that the worst advice she received in her career was not to connect social impact to being a business. What has been the worst advice along the way? I think it has to be don't say business and social responsibility in the same sentence. And and really, I think that just made me more determined. I think actually every business has to think about purpose and or else it's not going to be relevant. She got that advice earlier. And now it's a little bit more, I guess, in vogue oh, to connect. I mean, it's, it's actually <clears throat> necessary, I would argue, yep. to connect social impact to your business in some way. Uh, but but I thought that was just really interesting how far we've come from this idea that business should just be about making as much money as Absolutely. is humanly possible versus making a difference. It It is now an absolute must-have. And over the years, it has gone from something companies did to prevent uh, being served up by regulators to checkbook philanthropy when a CEO who typically at the time was a white middle-aged male would write a check to his cause of choice, you know, maybe a symphony, maybe a hospital, um, to an actual employee engagement model where you not only like find a cause and celebrate it, but also get your employees involved and then use that to showcase to bring in the best new employees and keep employees to what we're seeing now, which I think is even um, more uh, fascinating in a way, is companies stepping up to stand for, um, in some cases, controversial issues, but really um, talking about values and then stepping up to stand for those values. And what do you think, because you've worked with now and and continue to work with all of these massive companies from Coca-Cola to JCPenney to Kate Spade to Intel, what do you think has driven that? Why are we here now? 
Well, I often say it's kind of a perfect storm of a variety of things. First of all, there is finally a consensus that climate change is real and we don't have unlimited um, oil and gas supplies that are going to take us into perpetuity. So companies need to be smart. They need to be um, conserving their, their resources and planning for the future. You also had this growth called social media where no longer um, – you know, companies could 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 kind, kind of, of hide yes, in their ivory yes, tower exactly, away from all of it. Exactly. I said that opened the kimono. And it also, op, uh, you know, led to the opportunity for consumers to have direct correspondence with companies. OK, then you have um, the younger generations literally by the age of two or three looking at iPads and seeing news and happenings that, you know, forever and ever and ever we would never see. Children today are growing up and seeing Mogadishu, tsunamis. Um, they are seeing, you know, the refugee crisis. So we we are all um, under this fundamental notion that we are all connected around the world and therefore we have a responsibility. So when you take all of that together, it's and, – and then wait, one more thing, the fact that we are losing trust in what, what used to be the traditional um, pillars of, of institutions, government, religion, and therefore business now has, can fill in the void. So I really believe it's like a cacophony, if that's a word. Um, it is. It's perfect. It's uh, loud. Of all of those moving parts um, that has, has led us to be where we are. And – in your world, you're working with all of these companies and advising them on how to implement this change yes. internally. And I want to come at this from two different places for those who are thinking about starting businesses or have started businesses, and then also those inside of companies where they wish their companies would take on more of a, an active role in trying to make the world a better place. So let's start there. Okay. If you're inside of a company right now, and you feel like we're not doing enough. Look around. Yes. What can you do? Well, first of all, you have a voice and you have colleagues that um, generally you either work with or you know and you have friends. So a number of things. You personally can get involved and and volunteer. Um, there are a zillion. There's actually 1.4 million nonprofits, give or take, in this country today. Is there a place where you could go and figure out? This is the place that matches me with with my cause. Um, volunteer cares, New York cares. Um, I would also suggest going and looking at GuideStar, which will rate charities and nonprofits based on you know their finances and and how much impact they have. Um, but also do a deep dive into yourself to find out what you care about. Um, oftentimes people are led into causes because of personal situations. For instance, if you've lost someone to cancer or heart disease, you might find yourself gravitating towards those types of organizations. Or, you know, you might have had experience seeing hunger firsthand. Therefore, you might go that way. So I think it's really important to find out what you care about. But I also think using your voice and talking to your colleagues and your superiors um, about particular issues and causes that are important to you. Because chances are, if they're important to you, they're important to other people at the company. What led you here? Oh, gosh. I was <laughs> uh, I grew up with a, a mother who worked for public television and always told me that it wasn't about making money and it was about doing good. And a father who taught at a women's college for 39 years, which, which taught me, you know, that a woman's voice needed to be heard. Um, and, you know, they had, they were second generation. Um, and 
very much about giving back to the community. So that was instilled in me from a very young age. And I always had I always wore my heart on my sleeve. And by by nature of that, to for, for a further extension, I ended up doing lots of volunteer work. Um, but in hindsight, probably what really pushed me over the edge is I moved to New York City in 2003, and I didn't know anyone. And I decided probably, and I, I was going through a divorce, and I thought, well, a safe way to meet potentially a date or, or, <laughs> or someone to fall in love with would be to join some nonprofits. But I foolishly joined a nonprofit that was 99% women um, called Be Peace, Business Council for Peace. And in 2005, I went to Afghanistan with the Business Council for Peace, and I saw firsthand um, business being a force for good. Be Peace is – it still exists today, and I ended up being on the board for many years. But it is a, a network of business professionals that provide mentoring, career um, uh, training for women entrepreneurs. So women who had businesses in Afghanistan with 20 or so employees, we felt that if we helped them scale their businesses through our business acumen, those there'd be more jobs created and therefore less violence. So that was the epiphany. And at that point, I had been with the company PR Newswire for years. And because I had been involved in nonprofits, I was the person at the company that they would go to when they wanted to get involved with a charity. It was like, oh, Susan knows. Um, and then I went to Fenton Communications, which was one of the original boutique consultancies that served NGOs. And they had decided around 2009, 2010, that they wanted to start a corporate practice. So they hired me to run the corporate practice. So voila, that was the fastest way I've ever told that, that story. That was great. And that, <laughs> I mean, you had so you had this epiphany. You saw this yeah. in motion. What was the moment at which you said, it's time to break off and I'm ready to start my own well, thing? Yes. And that is so funny because I never in a thousand years thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. I had had a paycheck since I was 15. Um, and Did that make you nervous, the idea of not having a paycheck? Oh, and- oh my God. In fact, I, um, I left Fenton with the assurance of two organizations that said, if you leave, we will hire you. So I left on a Friday and I started on a Monday. I named it McPherson Strategies because I thought it was just a placeholder. Um, McPherson Strategies is my ex-husband's name and he's a wonderful fellow, but it just, you know, it didn't make sense. But again, I thought it was just, oh, until I figure out the next thing. And then it's we're coming up on five years uh, next month. Congratulations. Thank you. What do you wish you knew then that you now have come to realize now? That we'd be here in five years. and yeah, That you'd I, have more confidence in what yes, you were doing. Yes. And I, I, I wouldn't be so terrified. Um, and But the best advice I did receive, which I think is the reason for the success, was, um, well, two things. One, and this, is, this applies to the consulting world. When you have good months, you have a tendency to want to hoard and, and, and just kind of save it for a rainy day. And what you should be doing is using that to invest in bringing the best people around you who do all the things that you are not good at. So hiring more. Hiring more, aligning yourself with, you know, maybe finding partners. Um, but I have been very conscientious about surrounding myself with the people that do the amazing things that I am unable to do. And, and how did you realize, because I I think it's actually, 
easier said than done. Well, yes, yes. And I also say, you know, I was the grand old age of 48 when I started the business. And I don't think it would have been as successful if I had started it at age 38. And that is because of the pure network effect. I always say as you get older, it's just it's it's like the law of gravity. You just know more people. Yes. Um, And I've always all my life taken every single meeting. And, you know, it wasn't until Adam Grant came out with his book, Give or Take, that said, actually, the more meetings you hold, the more productive you get. But that's how I've lived my life. And I I collect people like people collect, you know, stamps. I mean, I <laughs> and I don't mean to say that I love not I, in a negative. No, uh, no, yeah. no. I mean, I just I, I am so fascinated by people and their stories and what makes them happy. And, and that is my joy. And, and I think, honestly, by doing that. Out of from my heart, that has come back to help the business, and it's also why we're in the world of social good. Yep. This I, to your point about people and networking and getting to know more and more people throughout your career. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Amy Astley uh, at Architectural Digest a couple of weeks ago. She talked about the idea that she came to New York. She didn't know anyone, and she thought, "What am I going to do? All the people around me seem to know all of these people." And the reassuring thing is, early on in your career, you you don't have to know everybody. Yeah. It's over time that you get to know all yes. of these people. Yes, and you also get to know yourself and what you care about. Exactly. And we are so lucky to live in a world that you can connect with almost anyone, too. I mean, I think back years ago when I, you know, was applying for my first jobs and you had to go through numerous gatekeepers. You had to use the Yellow Pages and the Encyclopedia Britannica. There was no Internet. There was no email. So, I mean, kids growing up today, you know, I always say if you're not using those tools, you're missing huge opportunities. How do you reach out to someone if you've never spoken to them before? What's your go-to method? Stay tuned for more No Limits after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. How do you reach out to someone if you've never spoken to them before? What's your go-to method? Well, let's think about how I reached out to you. <laughs> you got me on Twitter. <laughs> See? Which, uh, but I, I knew I knew you because um, I knew you through various friends, friends yes, and, and yes, colleagues, yes. which is a great, you know, it's yes. a testament to you and to the people Thank that you. you know. Thank you. Well, same. Right. Is that how you do it, though? Yes. Twitter is yeah. your place. I have found, and again, but before Twitter, I mean, it's funny. They used to say, you know, I'll back up. My mother was killed in a tragedy in 1986 when she was at the prime of her career. And she used to use her typewriter the way we use social media today. And um, she would connect and then stay in touch with people by just writing short little notes and then clipping articles and sending them. So it was like social media before social media. So again, that was part of my formative years. So and I did it in the 90s with email. Once we had email like 95 through, you know, when, when did social media take off? 2008. <laughs> I joined Twitter in 2009 and I think I it was like going to a dinner party and I didn't treat it as anything kind of bigger than that or less than that. It was just kind of like this is a new platform to explore. And I found that Instead of, you know, I often say we have two ears and one mouth, and that means we should be listening twice as much as as speaking. Well, on Twitter, by listening twice as much, you can learn so much about people and then be able to engage with them in a way that is comfortable. 
I love that. That's such a, a smart thought. So if you're an entrepreneur and you have an idea and you want to couple that with social impact, what's your best path? Wow. Well, one thing I always say to new entrepreneurs now, start when you're small. I mean, don't wait. Right. It used to be, oh, wait till we're profitable. The statement will happen yes. later. Yep. And and forget, I mean, don't even think about doing a mission statement if you're not going to follow through on what it actually means. So it's very much walking the walk and talking the talk. Um, but I, I often say if you're if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting small, you have a team, okay? If you want your team to be engaged in some sort of cause or passion or social impact, get them involved beginning. Ask them, okay? If you have 50 people, survey them. If you have 100 people, survey them. But that is the best way to get them early on excited about this. And make it part of a social engagement part of thing. Um, you know, some of the best ways you can you can have fun with your employees is going and doing volunteer work of mm-hmm. some sort because they're going to feel good, you're going to feel good, and guess what? Someone's going to benefit. Um, the other thing is, is by using less resources and, um, you know, uh, turning out the lights and, <laughs> and shrinking your packaging, you're actually going to save money. So as an entrepreneur, you should be thinking about these things. But it, the, the quote I use is, it's easier to turn a rowboat around than a cruise ship. So if you start implementing these types of, of activities and, and passion projects at the beginning, it is just going to become the norm when you get to be 500, 1,000, 2,000 people. When it comes to a choice about, does this thing, which might cost us more money, but is more key to our ideals... Does that – how do you think through decisions like that? Well, it's difficult because when you look at all the studies and surveys that have been done over the years, it's often, you know, it's asking consumers, would you buy from a company that you perceive to be doing the right thing? And, you know, it, it, what kind of individual is going to say no, right? Exactly. So it can be a bit um, unobjective. Um, so, you know, until we can actually show at the cash register by doing these things that, you know, there is an immediate return on investment, that is always going to be a challenge. But if you are looking at hiring the best people, retaining the best people, um, motivating your employees, that is another way to show return on investment. Because we all know when you lose an employee and you have to hire another one, there's a lot of costs involved. Okay. Um, I also think that it's, it's something that steps you out or, you know, uh, differentiates you from your competition. Um, and you can if, – if you partner with a nonprofit, you have an opportunity of reaching a new market that perhaps you wouldn't be able to reach through your traditional means. Um, there's there, – you know, there was one school of thought for years that a company needed to align with a cause that matches somehow its business. And it makes sense, right? It's more authentic. However – you know, if, if you can show why you have decided to fund a particular cause or support a particular organization, um, and I think once a company decides on a particular issue, that's when they need to galvanize and storytell and talk about it. But only if they're actually doing it, not if they're just maybe writing a check once every few years. Mm-hmm. So for you, your work takes you all over the world. Yes. You're going to Washington, D.C. tomorrow to speak to the WNBA. How do you keep from burning out? You know, I <laughs> um, I don't know. I might be there, but um, 
I, my, my team, I haven't taken a vacation in five years, and I'm going to Bali in September, and my team is taking my mail app off my phone um, so that I actually just stop. That's great. Um, I, I think Ariana Huffington <laughs> would approve of that. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm, that makes me feel better. I love the work I do. And so it really probably is is my my yoga. Um, and you do know, you do yoga? No, or, any, or mindfulness or, no. or meditation. I try. Or... I work out, <laughs> <laughs> and I drink wine. Um, but I've always had a ton of energy. Um, I, I was always known as you know the little energizer bunny, and I'm very petite. So I guess did you like, have a dream job as a kid? Yeah, I wanted to be you. I wanted to be on TV. <laughs> no, before my first dream job was what was then called a stewardess because when I was a little girl, we went and lived in Romania. My dad did a Fulbright and I just thought it was such a glamorous thing, you know. And then I wanted to be an astronaut, but I found out I had to study physics and I just got to chemistry and just didn't love physics. Um, and then I just fell in love with news. So I went to graduate I, – I studied history undergrad and then graduate school for broadcast journalism um, but ended up at USA Today. So I ended up on the print side. What, uh, what along the way has been the toughest lesson you've had to learn? Oh, gosh. So many. Um, the toughest lesson – well, the hardest thing is learning confidence, and I do think there is something to be said by being a diminutive five foot zero woman. Um, and you know, I don't look back with with love at the '90s because I I think that there were many times, and you know, there's a new book out, '90s Bitch" by Alison Yarrow, which talks about just the toxicity that was going on in the '90s when we thought women were getting ahead. I think one woman would get ahead, but then shut the door behind her, and I learned a hard lesson in the mid-90s when the boss I was working for at PR Newswire, and if anybody's listening to this who used to work at PR Newswire, they will remember this story. She took me aside the night before I was getting up to give a speech to 500 of my colleagues and told me that everyone hated me in the company. <gasps> and it was probably the most devastating thing I think I've ever, I mean, other than my mother's death, my mother's tragic death and, you know, other, you know, breakups and things like that. But it was, it was like, you know, you had an outer body experience. And it turns out, you know, in hindsight, that it was very much her own issue, that it had nothing to do with me, and it couldn't have been further from the truth. But for years, I doubted myself because of that, and went to such lengths to put other people first, instead of my myself, when, when in actuality, I was the person who had accomplished it. But I was so terrified of that comment. That's well, shocking. And this is the first time I've ever shared that publicly. Wow. So Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm, I just can't even imagine what went through your head when she said that. Well, I just I remember I did everything to keep projectile tears from coming out and drenching her. Um, because I was I was it, it was the most shocking thing. I was in Orlando, Florida at the time, and I remember I got back to my hotel room. You know, we, it was the sales conference for, for PR News. Or it must have been 95, 94, 95. I went back to my room, and you know that kind of sobbing where you're just like going to throw up? You're sobbing so hard. And I remember calling my husband at the time, and I couldn't even speak. Like I, And the thought that the next morning I had to get up and give a speech to this, this crew – um, and I'll never forget, he sent flowers the next day to the hotel. Um, but it's just, in some ways, you know, it's what, 20, 23 years ago. But it, just talking about it feels like yesterday. Mm. But I'm so far past that. Like, Which is why I think you can talk about it. Yes. That, it, like, yeah. When you're, when you've moved on from it. But yeah. was, was she trying to tell you 
that you were too assertive or something? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and then you counteracted that with being less assertive. Um, yes. And putting everyone first. Um, but, you know, in, in maybe the good that's come out of that is it's helped me build this world of amazing friends. Um, but, you know, I probably could go and spend a good deal of time of psycho- psychological and psychiatric counseling. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I would hope I that most help. people yeah. listening, if they if they heard something like that, they would turn to someone that they could trust yes. and talk to them about yes, it. of course. At a minimum, um, but at a maximum, I hope that most most of you, I, I can't even imagine hearing that from... Well, years from, later, people at the company, you know, executives at the company, and I was kind of a, a mid-executive at that point, um, but they apologized for mm. allowing that to happen. I mean, this is a, a time when when you had disparate offices, you weren't really connected to the main office. And if you had, um, you know, if you ran, say, three offices for a company, you had all, you had complete control, and no one really knew what you were doing. So, um, you know, those days are Yes, we, you know, with the whole Me Too, we know things happen. However, this was like if I was to bring this up to HR, it was very much there was no kind of proof in the pudding, right? I had to basically give my side of the story. But I will tell you, when she finally left the company, they sang Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. (laughs) Do you know if she works anywhere now? I have no idea. Okay, good riddance. I I have never done the, you know, the Google search. Speaking of Google and social media, Fortune named you one of the top people on Twitter. (laughs) So what would you say is the secret to breaking through in that world, which is so loud and so noisy, speaking of a cacophony? I love that word. That's my word of the day or word of the month. Um, Well, first of all, don't try to be all things to all people. I mean, you know, find your tribe. Find, you know, the things you're passionate about. And it doesn't have to be just one thing. It can be several things. But start following those hashtags and see who the the spokespersons are, for lack of better terms, in those areas. So if you are really into, you know, ultramarathoning, find out who the people are and then start listening to them and complimenting them. And, you know, suggesting things with them and literally just like you would make friends. I mean, I always um, when I was first getting in, in, involved in, in Twitter and, and other social platforms, uh, a dear friend of mine, Lisa Witter, said it's like a dinner party. And when you have everybody at a dinner party sitting around the table, what happens when one person monopolizes the conversation? You tune out, Right. So, but what about the person who's asking questions and asking people to talk about themselves? All of a sudden, you're like, wow. And so I just operate it like that. I mean, and, and, and without, I mean, now you don't, I don't really think about it. But I, I also still to this day, when I write up a tweet, I wait about 15 seconds before I send it. And I just ask myself, will anybody give a S-H-I-T. Yes. <laughs> do you, what percent of the time do you not send the tweet? Oh, I'd say a good 50%. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, I definitely choose to not send tweets sometimes because I'm I'm like, ooh, I don't know. Am I allowed to say that right now wow. in this yeah. world? Yes. Oh, my God. I know. I, I was <laughs> – that reminds me. I was on a panel at a corporate citizenship con- conference last year and the panel was like an hour and a half and I was so bloody bored. I finally said to everybody in the audience, let's take a 90-second break. Let's get up and stretch. <laughs> and then I said, after all – um, sitting is our generation smoking. One of my fellow panelists worked for Altria. <laughs> yeah, Altria. Oh. So that was one of those moments when you were like, oops, I wish I had waited 15 <laughs> seconds before saying that. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? My worst advice was um, 
stop showing emotion. Stop. You know, it's, you know, keep that. Keep your cool all the time. And quite frankly, we're human. And I bring my human self to work every day, and I'm proud of that human self. But for years, I was terrified of that human self. And was that a boss that told you that? There were several bosses at the time. This was very much around women, you know, this was a very, very patriarchal kind of way. And I was working for a company that was run by a British company, so it was a very conservative. um, But you know, I got a D in conduct in fifth grade, so I've always been a chatterer. So. You I, Well, I can definitely tell that you have made, whether it's subconscious or otherwise, you've made the choice to have a very big personality <laughs> it's in all a just, little package. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like stuffed inside. But yes. but that's that was your mindset for a while. For yep. a while, it yep. was like, yep. stuff it inside, don't yep. show it. And do you think that that there are things you missed out on or there are opportunities that oh, didn't absolutely. come to be because absolutely. of that? Yeah, um, no doubt. Um, and also I um, I would say staying in positions longer than I should have, mm. okay? Yeah. And that also, again, back to the confidence thing. But my late father, uh, best words of advice he ever gave me was, nothing is a prison sentence. And unless, of course, it's a prison sentence, um, meaning – if it's if you make a bad decision, you can go back and change your mind. And I, I, that has also been a mantra that's helped me. But, you know, this is all like, you know, boy, if we knew this then, right? Absolutely. Well, sometimes the difference between knowing and really knowing, you hear these things yes. along the course of your career. And then there's a, a change at some point where you, you really internalize them and you get it. Yep. Yep. Where do you think that happened for you along the way? I would say it's honestly since I started my company and I could kind of set the path ahead um, and, again, surround myself self with a team that I swear I absolutely am in love with them. And, you know, it's funny. We all work disparately um, or whatever that word is. Various um, pl- locations. Yes, yes, you don't have to all be yes, in one spot. Right. And I honestly think because of that, we love each other more. And that, and, <laughs> Distance makes the heart yes, grow fonder. You know, it's not like you're sitting next to somebody and their chewing's bothering you or <laughs> – and and when we see each other, it's a celebration. And um, you know whether it's once a week or, or or twice a week, it's still it's special. And um and, and I just watch how everybody supports each other. And you know it, it it and this may not be in the kind of the business one hundred and one, but I do believe just treat people with respect and dignity, and and the the benefits will come. Susan McPherson, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Thank you, Rebecca. You're a gem. You are. All right, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur was nominated by Diana Lucas. She is Sarah Flint, the CEO and founder of Sarah Flint, which is a direct-to-consumer luxury footwear company. It's a favorite with the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, as well as Amal Clooney, many others, including supermodel Cindy Crawford. But that's not why Sarah got our attention. Sarah studied at Parsons in the Fashion Institute of Technology. She always had a passion for shoes. She moved to Italy and studied footwear manufacturing in Milan and interned for a lot of big-name brands like Diane von Furstenberg and Proenza Schooler. But one thing that always troubled her was the cost of designer shoes. She wanted to create a brand that had the quality of extremely high-end brands but didn't cost you a month's rent to get one. 
She also wanted to make shoes that not only were beautifully designed, but also comfortable and functional. So in the fall of 2013, at the age of 25, she launched her namesake brand, and by going direct to consumer, Sarah's been able to knock out the middleman and lower costs by almost 50% below traditional retail. Here she is to tell you more about it. Hi, I'm Sarah Flint, and I'm the designer, founder, and CEO of Sarah Flint Shoes. My love affair with shoes really started at the age of six with a shiny black pair of patent leather tap shoes. When I put those shoes on, I felt like the most confident version of myself. That is the power of a great pair of shoes. When I grew up and started to buy designer shoes, I became so frustrated by the fact that you had to sacrifice feeling good for looking good. And because there's nothing empowering about walking around in a very uncomfortable but beautiful pair of shoes, I started Sarah Flynn. Luxury shoes designed with you in mind that feel as good as they look, sold direct, no retail markup. Congratulations, Sarah. It is awesome to see your shoes out in the wild in so many magazines photographed all over the place. I wish you and your company continued success. And remember to all of you listening, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more of Sarah's story and how she created her business. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations to no limits with rjpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send me career questions there as well. I know how busy you all are, so thank you to those who take the time to write. It really does mean a lot, so thank you. And thank you, thank you to those who leave us reviews. For example, MBS Thanks, who writes, As one of the last humans on Earth to discover podcasts, I am so glad I found Rebecca's. She guides unique, inspiring, and informative conversations that help reaffirm and guide what I am doing with my life as a woman in medicine. She seeks out people who have found joy and inspiration in what they are doing, and that carries over through my earbuds and into my life. Thanks, Rebecca. Well, thank you, MBS Thanks. I love that. Finally, a shout out to our awesome team here who helps make this happen week after week. Producer Taylor Dunn, editor Michelle Bancardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.